Hello and welcome to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely deep literary merit, with your classy and sophisticated hosts, Alexandra Rowland, Freya Mosk, and Jennifer Mace. On today's episode, we're taking a break from tropes to gush about some of our favorite recent and upcoming works. And welcome to episode 81, an apology and a collection of wrecks. I am Alex, and I am the fantasy one. I'm Freya, and I'm the romance one. I'm Macy, and I am the young adult one. We are three red-headed fantasy authors. And before we do move on to what we've been reading lately, we would like to issue a long overdue apology and talk explicitly about some of the work that we have been doing and we will be doing on the podcast. So for background, in episode number 71, we featured Naomi Novik as a guest, and we discussed her new book, A Deadly Education. Around the time that that episode aired, there were some reviews and critiques coming out of certain aspects of that book, particularly, but not limited to, the inclusion of a racist stereotype regarding black hair. We made a brief statement in episode 72, saying that as white readers who still have many areas of ignorance, that content went over our heads during our reading of the book. Some fans of the podcast then tried to engage with us and request that we explain the situation further, that we add more context and especially some content warnings to those episodes to prevent harm to any readers of colour who might be harmed by the content in the book. We would like to apologise sincerely for how we handled that, and for the long period of willfully not listening and silence, which was a product of our own white privilege. We fucked that one up, and we are really sorry. We have now added more context, along with links to some of those reviews and critiques, in the transcripts and show notes of both episodes, and we have added a content warning to the audio of episode 71. And we wanted to spend a bit of time on air now, telling you about other actions that we're taking, because we have realized that keeping all of our deliberations and discussions private, not owning up to our mistakes and being open about our goals, uh, was part of the fucking up. Yeah, so basically we just want to be a little bit more transparent about what we're doing and um, the changes that we're making going forward. Because also I think that these are some like really positive and good things for the podcast. I think this is going to make a better podcast overall. Yeah. And I think that, um, to, to be perfectly explicit, we want to make strides at being actively anti-racist, not just mm-hmm. not actively racist because those are different things right uh so one of the things going forward from now on we're going to be a little bit more conscientious about content warnings uh i think in the past we have been saying aloud during the audio of the episode like if there's a, a content warning for a book that we think is is necessary to mention um like oh just be aware there are some depictions of child abuse in this uh this episode uh but we think that it's worthwhile to put those in the actual show notes so that people have the heads up before going into the episode so that they can just be as informed as possible. Yeah, and I think just being a little bit more systematic about it, um, mm-hmm. a little bit more structured, uh, which can only help for anyone who's trying to consume media safely. Mm, so I think those have been coming a bit ad hoc at the moment. We've sort of been saying exactly. them as we right. as it occurs to us in the discussion. So we want to try and put in a system so that this is happening on a more regular basis. Mm-hmm. And, yes. you know, try to yeah. figure out what things do we want to tag for? Um, how do we want to tag for that? And also both for the media that we'll be discussing, 
and for the places that our discussion goes during the episode, because sometimes mm-hmm. that goes a little bit uh, to other places, right? Because works have implications, and those are things we try to pick apart in this podcast, <laughs> but that's part of the content, and it should also be warned for. Right, right. Uh, so going forward, you will probably see more of that in, well, not probably, you will, <laughs> you will, you will see more of it <laughs> uh, in the show notes, just as we try to be a little bit more conscientious um, and frankly, caring about our audience's experiences. Mm-hmm. So the other significant thing that we are doing going forward, um, actually, so a little bit of backstory, because I think this is really cool of the person who brought this to our attention. Last summer, we got an email from a listener who put together an entire spreadsheet of every tentpole we had ever done uh, and emailed that to us and said, hey, you kind of have been tentpoling a lot of white works. Um, maybe you want to ha- be aware of that. Uh, and that was incredibly, incredibly useful. So to that listener, I just wanted to say thank you so much for doing that work because uh, that's definitely a change that we wanted to make. So after we received that feedback, um, we took a more conscious look at the demographics of the works that we're promoting and discussing on this show. Um, and we decided that one of the things we wanted to get better at was tracking and making sure that we were having more works, more professional works by people of color featured on the show in the tentpole position, which is really our, you know, pride of place. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something we've been doing for a while, but we didn't talk about it in public, which means that people can't keep us honest. So now we're being more explicit about that and we're making a commitment to you, uh, our listeners and our audience. And that commitment is that for every episode that's a three tentpole episode, we will have a minimum of one professional work by a creator of color, a black indigenous person of color, either as a novella, a novel, a movie, the TV show, something that is not white. And I wanted to take a little bit of a spin at explaining a little bit about how we pick tentpoles, because I think Mm. it's relevant. So we come up with episode ideas in a lot of different ways, but one of the kind of key ways that we build an episode is around a particular piece of fiction or media that we love. And in my mind, I kind of think of these as like the seed tentpole, right? Mm -hmm. You guys kind of know Mm -hmm. what I mean. Um, And one of the things that I'm going to try to do, uh, because I, my brain is full of pieces of fiction and I read quite fast. So a lot of the times it (laughs) tends to be me. What? Do you? (laughs) Buddies, I'm sorry. It's not my fault. (laughs) My brain just makes connections. (laughs) So since I'm, a lot of the times I'm the one saying, you know, why don't we do this episode? Why don't we do an apocalypse episode? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm going to be tracking. Are those seed tentpoles, the ones that we feature and build an ep around, are those white or not. Mm, mm. So for example, we have an episode coming up that I'm super excited to record that we haven't recorded yet around post-climate apocalypse fiction. And that has been sitting in the back of my mind for a long while now because of Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse, which is a work that we talked about in our Hugo finalist novel episode, Lo, these infinitely many years ago. (laughs) 
when the Hugos were things that we went to in Meat Space. Um, <laughs> oh, conventions, yeah. remember yeah. those? God. Yeah, and it's I just a really good book, you guys. And I think we could have a lot to talk about on that topic. So yeah. we're going to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as Macy said, we are definitely keeping that to uh, professional works by, by creators mm-hmm. of colour. Yeah. Basically for the reason that there is no way to tell the race of an author of fanfic. And it's pretty intrusive to attempt to either guess or ascertain the race. And so we have no way to be held accountable in that sense. And so we are not counting fanfic towards that, uh, having at least one uh, professional creator of color when we are talking about episodes with multiple tentpoles. Yeah, because fan writers, I think, deserve a right to a certain amount of anonymity Mm -hmm. unless they specifically and explicitly choose to waive that anonymity. Right. And I think that also... We want to promote work that will earn money for the people yeah. who write it, which is there's not also what that. does. Yeah. It's not what it's for. Right, right, right. Yeah. So like there's a, a, a material benefit to be helping people with as well. So those are a couple of the things that we're working on, dear listeners. And we just wanted to share those with you out loud um, and hope that that was interesting to you. But now... I have been promised a treat, which yes, I never Macy get Macy does do. get a treat. <laughs> Macy gets a treat this time. I have a scripted line. <clears throat> <laughs> Ham it up, girl. But before we get into the rest of the episode, what are we reading, fellow Slurpants? I'm sorry, I don't know how to answer that question when it comes from someone who isn't Alex. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as usual, I have been reading all of the books. We know. Uh, so the ones that I would like to particularly talk about today, uh, I have read two Sapphic Elliot de Bedard novels recently mm. because Elliot just keeps on producing amazing novellas. So the first one I read was Seven of Infinities, which is another in her Julia universe. And that one is a murder mystery, which is also a romance between a scholar and a spaceship. And it has made <laughs> me... such an Elliot de Bedard. Yeah. It's such an Aliatamadad pitch, but it has made me really, really want more love stories involving spaceships. So every Aliat sounds like your every Aliat to Bedard novella is there's a scholar and they're in love with a blank, and the blank is never another person. <laughs> it's always a dragon or a spaceship. <laughs> well, a dragon. Okay, we love that from her. Well, I mean, half of that is true for the other novella that I read of hers, oh, which God. is Fireheart Tiger, <laughs> which has just come out. Uh-huh. And this one is a sapphic love triangle between two diplomacy princesses and also a fire spirit. She's so on brand. I love her. She's She's so on brand. She's valid. Uh, And that one was pitched as Howl's Moving Castle meets the Goblin Emperor. Uh, Hello. Yes. Hello. Sounds like something you'd be into. Yes. (laughs) So I just finished that one. I um, snapped it up very quickly. It's quite a short novella. And thoroughly recommend that one. Uh, moving to slightly longer books, I also recently read an arc of The Jasmine Throne, which is t- the start of Tasha mm. Suri's new epic fantasy series. Where do you two get all the arcs? No one sends me arcs. I know. I, I go looking for them. I pester <laughs> my agent. I pester <laughs> the authors. I pester people I know at publishing houses. Yep. And I say, give me the arcs. <laughs> Freya's displaying Freya's long-hidden Slytherin side. <laughs> exactly. 
Exactly. Anyway, I was lucky enough to get hold of this. This is a phenomenal book. Like, I loved uh, Tasha's first two books, The Books of Amber. Mm -hmm. This is a level up. And just on every level, the world building, the character work, the plot. And it is also sapphic. It features uh, the sister of an empress who is trapped in a tower and the handmaiden who is hiding powerful magic who ends up befriending her and they become reluctant allies and there's just so much going on. Yes. It's it's very good. Very not easy to get through. Like there's some very heavy mm-hmm. stuff going on in it, but it's a fantastic book and a really exciting start to a new series. Nice. Uh, and then the last two I'll talk about are on lighter notes. I read, <laughs> again, an arc of the new Cat Sebastian romance which is coming out later this year this is called the queer principles of kit webb it is a male male romance set in the georgian era so pre-regency <laughs> more wigs more beauty marks more <laughs> tight silk breeches and exciting colors and oh. this is a romance between a retired highwayman <gasps> and the young nobleman oh. who hires him for a job and it involves a lot of sitting around flirting in coffee shops, and it's it's just great. I, really charming. I was just offered an arc of this book, and I said, yes, please. You have to be, like, less British polite about it, Macy. You have to, like, slide into people's DMs and be like, hey, I love you. I cannot. I cannot. I know. That's why you don't get arcs and alone. But that's why you have an agent. You just have to slide into Kirsten's DMs and be like, I can't do that. Please be aggressive on my behalf. She's so busy. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway. (laughs) I don't know how to help you, babe. (laughs) The last arc that (laughs) I will talk about, which I did get by shamelessly begging the author, or at least being very loud about it on Twitter, is a novella by Alex E. Harrow. Mm. This novella is called A Spindle Splintered, which is difficult to say five times fast. That is difficult. And it also has an incredible pitch, which is Spider-Verse, but make it Sleeping Beauty. Okay. 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 So the Into the Spider-Verse aspect of this is the idea of multiverse Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. versions of the same base story and base characters. And it is about mm-hmm. a very angry young woman who ends up spider-versing her way into a fairy tale <laughs> uh, and meeting a lot of other versions of the Sleeping Beauty character, and mm. they have to go on a quest. Alex Harrow is amazing at angry women mm. and like the yep. righteous anger of women. And it also contains a line referencing a Tumblr meme, which I'm not going to spoil for anyone because when it happened, I was so angry that I went into DMs <laughs> and yelled at Alex about it. <laughs> Uh, so I think this one isn't out for a little while, but definitely keep your eye out for when it does come out. It, again, is a quite a quick read and absolutely delightful on every level. So Wonderful. I'm done. <laughs> that's also a very, like, on-brand Alex Hero book, though. That's, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been a little while since we, we talked about what books we've mm-hmm. read, and I have read some stuff. Um, I have read Jen Lyon's second book, The Name of All Things, which is like a battle horse girl book with demons and dragons yeah. and fuck gender. It's fuck gender, first of all. Fuck gender. Gender is a lie in a trap. Uh, <laughs> and also this is a very much so a horse girl down. book. <laughs> yes. It's basically, yeah, it's basically you take the saddle club and throw it in a cauldron with the words fuck gender, fuck gender. and a very large dragon. And a lot of demons. And, and a lot of like demon hunt yeah. possession and like 
Jen did a thing in the end of the book that is not spoilers because I don't think anyone will be as mad about this as I am, but she made like magical poison rock that's just radiation <laughs> and I'm so mad at her <laughs> because it's so fucking good. Uh, anyway, that's a good book. It's a big chunk a of a chunk book of as well. Um, I also tripped and fell and read half a million words of like Bat Family Avengers <laughs> crossover fic oh so on brand (laughs) there was an there was there was an ot3 fic in which what was it jason todd and bucky barnes end up with baby tony stark as like his after his dad has just been killed by bucky barnes and they're running around stabbing things and having superhero adventures and like punching hydra in the face and it's just a lot yeah yeah (laughs) And sometimes you just need to read a fic full of punching things. And those were all by uh, an author called The Party Responsible. Um, And the OT3 one is called Do Every Stupid Thing. Mm. It's very Mm. good. Um, And then we, well, so I I had a a loss in the family last week, Mm. uh, a week and a bit ago. And so that was happening for a little while. And so I really wanted to be reading things with families in them since I couldn't be with my family. So I read a lot of really amazing young adult books that I'd had waiting for me on my shelf that I'd been looking forward to. And I'll talk about those a little bit later in more detail, but particularly shout out to Star Daughter, Eladzoe and Ray Bearer, which we will definitely <laughs> get into later. So that's what I've been wonderful, reading. Wonderful, wonderful. I have been watching a whole passel of TV shows lately. Uh, first up was uh, Bridgerton. I watched that when that first came out. Uh, mm. Binged it in like one sitting. So good. So good. Uh, a lot of people were like, I saw some people being stupid on Twitter about how like, oh, this is like Jane Austen, but bad. Shut up. No, it's not. It's not Jane Austen. It's a Regency <laughs> historical romance novel. It's Gossip it's, Girl. Well, yeah, it, it's Gossip Girl. It's like Regency romance. It's a romance novel in the form of a TV show and it's brilliant and it's good. Um, and it has all of the the drama and the, oh no, my reputation, and like beautiful men swanning about in extremely tight pants and just being the most gorgeous thing. Uh, and the costume porn and all of the good things, all the things you like, dear listeners, all the things you like. I also, on Freya's recommendation, watched a uh, Japanese <laughs> drama called Cherry Magic. Uh, Freya slid into my DMs and was like, Alex, I have found the show for you. Uh, and we, I, we kind of watched it at the same time, but you were like seven episodes ahead of me. It is yeah, full so of tropes. Yeah, so I kept promising you things that were coming up. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, it's full of tropes. It is about a young man who turns, well, I guess turning 30 you're not so much a young man anymore uh it's about a very cute man is what i mean a very cute man who turns 30 and in this world alex says the only 30 year old on this podcast yeah (laughs) i'm the baby (laughs) (laughs) for like another Uh for like another another two weeks i'm the baby um uh so he turns 30 and in this this world if you turn 30 and you're still a virgin, you gain magical powers. And the magical powers that you gain are that if you touch another person, you can read their thoughts. 
Uh, and he pretty much immediately discovers that his hottest co-worker is in love with him uh, and has these technicolor <laughs> domestic fantasies about, like, bringing him coffee in the mornings and, like, cooking food for him. Uh, and it's extremely gay and really just the tooth-rotting sweetest thing you've ever seen. Highly recommend it. Um, I have also been watching a historical Chinese drama called Sleuth of the Ming Dynasty, which is about a slutty twink with his cheeks full of snacks and a snack in each hand and his pockets full of snacks <laughs> and his like 12 sugar daddies and together Aww. they solve crimes. I thought you were, I was just waiting for you to say and he is himself a snack. He is himself a snack hey. as well. It's true. <laughs> He's a snack. He's, like a He's a snack and he always wants snacks and his sugar daddies are like let me buy you all the snacks you want while we solve murders and crimes. Uh <laughs> in one of his sugar daddies is the emperor of China, so that's cool. <laughs> so that's a lot of snacks. It's a lot of snacks. Oh. Uh, um, this year I am also uh, working on a personal project, which is that I am learning to read Chinese and to sort of teach myself that. I've been practicing by uh, translating a novel called Invitation to Wine. Uh, by Tang Juqing, uh, which obviously doesn't have an English translation, otherwise I would just be reading it in English. Um, so I'm sorry for <laughs> any of our listeners who don't speak Mandarin, uh, but for those who do, uh, we'll include a link in the, the show notes to it. Uh, I don't know really what it's about yet, because I'm only like two chapters into it. A boy is getting like beaten to death by on the order of the emperor because of some shit that his dad did. It's good. <laughs> That's that's how sea dramas, I guess, yeah. or sea novels, web novels. Oh uh, yeah, it's a web novel. Uh, so uh, that's everything that I've been reading. I think we should have an episode now because I also want to be like yeah. yelling about some other cool stuff that we've been reading. So with the earlier discussion that we were having, we wanted to leave as much space as we needed to like have that discussion and to like go into it in as much detail as we were going to. So rather than having three tent poles that are centered around a theme. We're spending the rest of this episode doing one of our excited yelling episodes where we kind of like pitch uh, works to each other. Uh, so each of us has picked out a work by a author of color uh, and each of us is championing a particular genre. Uh, so yes. I think that Macy is going to start us out. Macy is telling us about YA, correct? Yes. Well, we're not really doing all of a genre. Right. Genres are large, guys. They are. Genres are big. Did and, you know and that? And YA contains multitudes. Oh my god, YA yeah. YA contains multitudes. So specifically, Macy is talking about a novel that I have been meaning to read for a while now, and I finally got the time. I'm going to be talking about Ray Bearer by Jordan Ifweko, and it is an epic fantasy YA. Mm. And... I am ridiculously impressed by this book because it's like 380 word, 80 words long. Yes. Wow. See, that's a, great a book. book. <laughs> I read it in 30 A long book. <laughs> it is 380 pages long, dear listeners. Don't, don't let me sell it short. And Jordan gets so much into that. Like, it's obscene. Mm. You know when you're starting a book and there's this hook and you're like, oh, this is a problem. This is going to be the thing that bites the main character in the arse and it's going to be resolved at the conclusion of the book. So she hits you with one of them. She's like, this character, her father is a god of the Velt who has been imprisoned and treated as a djinn and got three wishes from the mother, mm. right? 
oh no, this is big, this is bad. She resolves that by the end of act one and gives you another one Mm. and does that two more times. And I'm like, how? How? Yeah. Anyway. It's some cool structure stuff. (laughs) It's super cool. So this is a novel about a young girl called Tavisai who lives in a world with a global empire that is kind of ruled by a single emperor and his 11 council members. And because, of course, this is YA, we know where this is going, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Tarasai has to go and become eligible and audition and prove herself to become a member of the council for the heir to the throne. Mm. And the emperor, every time that he kind of anoints one of his council members, he gains immunity to one type of death. And so there's this very, like, knights of the round circle kind of trope, which I really love. So, but the problem, of course, is that Tarasai's mother Mm -hmm. has raised her alone and isolated in this little house um, with a bunch of retainers who aren't allowed to touch her. Mm -hmm. So she's a very touch-starved, affection-starved little girl who knows nothing about politics or the state of the empire or who is who. And right before 11-year-old Tarasai is sent off to the capital to try to audition to become a member of the council, her mother takes her aside and uses her last wish with the djinn to say, you will see this young boy, and when he anoints you, you will kill him. Oh, shit. So Tarasai has said, this is still act one. Right, (laughs) right. I'm not going, I'm going to be very careful not to spoil anything that happens after the midpoint of the book, because you should all go read this, dear listeners, because it's amazing. Uh, but this is act one. So Tarasai, little 11-year-old Tarasai, is sent off as a sleeper agent mm. because members of the council are the only ones who can kill the emperor, right? Uh, they gain an immunity to a type of death, but not if it's coming from, from one that of person. the council. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. I mean, I have to say, knowing, you know, the history of politics as we do... <laughs> This seems like a very unstable system for this land to have developed. Oh, nobody can kill the emperor except for the very you know important, powerful people who are closest to the emperor and might have some kind of reason to want them dead. Well, no, because th- this is the thing. Like every time you turn around, um, there's like a plot hole or a world building hole you look at and you're like what if it was like this and Jordan Ofueko has already thought of it uh-huh. and has filled uh-huh. it in uh-huh. so it is the only way that an emperor can anoint a council member remember that they're children right. they're all children okay. is if they love each other um, they have to love each other they have a telepathic connection and he offers this love I love all back. of these tropes Macy oh my god right? <laughs> these are all very good tropes and so the, the emperor can offer to as many of the... They, they have basically an entire palace full of children mm-hmm. from all of the realms, all of the most talented, magically gifted children who are auditioning, and the emperor will try to make connections with mm. them, but it won't take unless they both genuinely love each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and just to clarify, this is like the the, the, the emperor-to-be who is... Yes, like, sorry, this is... I was going to say, I was really becoming like, why would an emperor have a council of 11-year-olds? That seems <laughs> silly also. I think I'm just misunderstanding <laughs> the pitch. <laughs> So the emperor can die of old age, so they're not immortal, but they they are immune to the eleven ways of death. That's very cool. So, at which point does the new emperor, like the one who's been raised with his you know knights of the round table eleven year olds, become the emperor? Uh-huh. Like, surely when their not father for a very dies of old age. Okay, mm-hmm. 
So they've got a long lifetime of just hanging around with your 11 telepathic buddies until that happens. (laughs) Well, and each of the 11 council members ends up with a particular role. So one of them will end up being the the religious head of the realm. One of them will end up being the chief judge. One of them will end up being the chief general. Mm -hmm. And so the council of the current reigning emperor holds those chairs. But the council members of the heir are also kind of in training and doing those jobs, Mm -hmm. right? So they are all actually acting as kind of civil servants or politicians Mm -hmm. or, you know, a general. And I haven't even gotten to the coolest part. Wait, there's more? (laughs) It gets cooler than this? You guys don't understand. This book is so good. (laughs) So the, the reason that they... So it's a worldwide empire. Uh, and the, each of the countries is kind of almost continent-sized, and they were melded together in order to stand up against the demonic armies Shit. below the earth. Shit, okay. Who will come and eat them all and curse them all with plagues if they don't sacrifice 300 children to them every year. Ooh. And the children are marked at birth. Here's, here's the thing about YA. Here's the thing that I'll tell you about YA, is that YA goes fucking hard. YA goes harder than any other genre, especially on the rule of cool. And okay, I haven't gotten to the romance bit yet. God, this book, you're... You have you were at the beginning at the beginning of this you were like it's three hundred however many pages long and she fits so much in there and I was like oh okay so so she fits like a normal amount in there and no (laughs) no 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 this is I can't I can't it's just so much so okay the rule is that the only so council members are not allowed to have a romance or sleep with anyone who isn't the emperor. Okay. Okay, so... So, council Macy, slash harem. Macy, <laughs> yes. Macy, I love this trap. It's so good. It's got built-in liege and loyal retainer. Oh, yes. It does. But, and here is a minor spoiler for, like, a revelation from slightly later in the book. Okay. Uh, so, like, skip the next 30 seconds if you want to, listeners. The heir to the empire is ace. Mm. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> and so all of the council members are just like, well, I, I guess we're, <laughs> I guess we're fucked in that we're not fucked. But then, like, everyone just ignores this rule anyway and has a- illicit affairs and they have, like, a specific tree that makes, like, singing noises and everyone's like, just go to the fucking tree. Just, like, just take your lover to the fucking tree. <laughs> Okay. All right. I'm into like 18, it. I love this. By the end of this book, yeah. right? And they're like, you know, they're pairing off. They're all like, yeah, no, we're definitely chased, but also there's this tree. <laughs> <laughs> this is all incredible. I love this. It's amazing. Um, and the other, another great trope in this book. So uh, all of the different realms. So the the emperor's realm and the Tarasai's realm that she's from are kind of African nations. Um, there are some of the other realms are like, this is the European realm. This is the, the like, there, there are different uh, ethnicities and races across the whole nation. And that is actually fairly, there's not a lot of prejudice about race uh, mm. in this world. There's a little bit of tension between the countries just as nationality things. Mm-hmm. But this world goes hard on the misogyny. Mm. Uh, you've got to have something, right, to 
stack the deck against some characters to give you something to fight against. Right. Um, and so as the story unwraps, as it as the story progresses, uh, and you learn more about, you know, the evil mother of the main character, you start to realize, okay, so she's been fucked over too. Mm-hmm. So the trope, misogyny fucks everyone. Uh, so it's a queer norm world and it's fine to have relations between people of the same gender, but also women are not allowed to be certain things like emperors. And the one female emperor in history as basically being erased from history. Mm. Well, this sounds amazing. And yeah, I'm it is going to be adding that to my library list immediately. It's so good. <laughs> and I'm really, really mad that the second one isn't out yet. Also, it's a duology, apparently. And so somehow she's going to cram the whole, like, we didn't, we did not resolve the demons in book one. And so, like, all of this <laughs> is going to have to happen in one more young adult length Gosh. book. And I'm not ready. <laughs> Gosh. You know, sometimes, like, someone is just, like, so fucking good at their job. too powerful. Too powerful. Just too powerful. Yeah. Wow. And this is a debut as well. Holy fuck! Everyone. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) All right. All right. Okay. (laughs) So, so yes, Jordan Ifueko, write that one down. Yeah. Because you're going to want to be watching it. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk a little bit about YA in general. Mm. And I do feel like young adult... Um, like authors of color, young adult authors of color in the last few years have been putting out so many amazing books. Mm. And I want to give a shout out to the other one I read the other week, which is Alatsue, which, Freya, did you read this one? No, my library has a lot of holds on it. And so it hasn't come in yet because it's pretty... As well it should. Yes, it's on my list. But this one is by Darcy Little Badger and it's like a familial murder mystery and the main character has the power to summon ghosts of animals. And at one point she summons ghost trilobites. And it's okay. the coolest shit. Okay. <laughs> into it. <laughs> and she like ends up accidentally yeeting herself into like the Jurassic period. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. At one point it has to like be rescued from, or like rescue herself from the memory of prehistoric coral. This sounds really so familiar. Cool. This sounds really familiar. She's so cool. And I don't, I don't think that I have read this, but it sounds incredibly familiar and I can't figure out why. Please continue. You, you may follow Darcy on Twitter, so maybe Darcy has maybe. been speaking about it and you saw that. That could, that could be it. But also, this main character very early on in the book is like, well, what do I want to do with my life if I go to college? I want to be either a paranormal investigator or a paleontologist. Mood. Mood. And I'm like, you are the coolest kid. Yeah. You are the coolest kid. Uh, and the other one that I read this past week is Star Daughter by uh, my friend Shweta Thakar, mm-hmm. who, Alex, I believe you also yes. know. Uh, and this is a portal fantasy. She introduced us. Yes. We need to, to shout out Shweta for, for introducing us and in in being the reason this podcast exists. Uh, and Star Daughter is this sparkling, like, um, celestial fantasy mm. about a young Indian girl whose mother is a star. And when she has an accident with her superpowers, she has to go up to the celestial court and try to negotiate for the healing blood to heal her father, who she has accidentally hurt. Mm. And so having a lot of feelings about family this past week, it was amazing to read something about 
a girl kind of negotiating a really fraught relationship with her parents and with herself and coming out of it stronger and, you know, knowing who she was. I think, like, the YA fantasy, given that it's quite a busy space, the stuff mm-hmm. that comes out often has the most amazing hooks. And oh, there's some yes. really incredible work being done in it. I think partly because as it does contain multitudes, there is a little <laughs> bit more leeway to just fuck around a bit with genre. Because in adult mm-hmm. fantasy, you know, there's a there is a little, a little bit of an expectation. I think it, I think it's getting more vague around the edges, but there is still this idea that you have to be writing historical fiction, historical fantasy, or epic fantasy, or science fantasy. You know, which which of the fantasies are you doing? But because YA fantasy is still considered its own genre, you can just do whatever the fuck you want. Well, and I think I will say this. Um, as someone who was trying to sell YA for a little while there, I think you can do a lot, but you have to have amazing pacing. Mm. Right? Yeah. You have to have a really strong hook, and your pacing has to go bam, bam, bam. And yes. I think all three of the authors that I mentioned really have a solid grasp on that. Mm. As I say, it's the same as when I read a really good novella. I'm just in awe mm-hmm. when I read a really good YA of how much people can cram into a short space. Because as someone yes. who is naturally very long-winded, <laughs> I have a great admiration for people who can pull off this kind of really sleek storytelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yes, dear listeners, you should probably pick up many of those. Uh, And if you're digging back a little bit further, if I'm thinking back into the past few years of what's come out, I wanted to also give a shout out to The Bells for having epic, like, fucky plant world building and a magic system based around plastic surgery. Uh, And to Wild Beauty, again, for having amazing weird plant magic and all sorts of queer investigation and family feelings and like what is gender and who do i want to be cool may i yes macy is done (laughs) shouting infinitely many book names i just am really excited about ya i mean there's a lot to be excited about with ya right now seriously and i wish that more people would take ya seriously because of the amazing Mm -hmm. work that is being done in ya like like i said ya goes goes hard um oh yeah yeah incredible stuff so first of all to I have to introduce this uh, tentpole that I am going to be pitching to you guys with an apology to our listeners, because oh, this book doesn't come out until July of this year. Hi. I'm really sorry, but I really wanted to yell about it. Uh, uh. So the book is She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan, and it is incredible. It's extremely good. Uh, it is a Chinese historical fantasy about a girl whose name she eventually becomes known by the name uh ju chongba uh through plot events which i won't get too much into i'm going to have to here's the thing i don't want to tell you too much about the plot because it hasn't come out so i don't want to give you like any spoilers whatsoever just because it's not fair to the listeners and also it's not fair to shelly as an author to have the work talked about Mm -hmm. that openly um But it is incredible, and I do want to talk about why it is so cool and why you need to go put it on your pre-order list right now, dear listeners. Uh, So this book is about uh, Ju Chongba, whose family dies in a famine, and she sneaks away and pretends to be a boy so she can join a monastery. And this whole book has so much to do about the themes of fate and destiny Mm. and what is your fate 
in comparison, like, can you steal someone's fate from them? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the thing that's really cool and the thing that I was thinking about a lot is that in Western media in particular, we spend a lot of time putting a lot of weight on character agency. And like, there's this obsession in, in Western literature that, that like, oh, your, your main character has to have agency, right? And that's something that I, as an author, struggle with a lot because <laughs> I like to write about sad crying boys who sit there <laughs> and do nothing until the plot happens to them. Um, calling myself out here, but we all know it's true. Uh, and here's the thing. This is not to say that Shelley's protagonist does not have agency because she absolutely does. She is one of the most ambitious protagonists that I have ever read. Um, but the fact that fate and destiny play such a huge role in this book just got me thinking about a lot of like the preconceived notions that we have about like how to structure a story and how a story is supposed to work and like the engine of the story. Mm. Uh, there's a couple points in the book where I'm going to speak metaphorically here, uh, where fate takes someone by the hand and leads them forward to something. And if it was less explicitly about fate and destiny, I think that that could be interpreted as kind of a deus ex machina. Mm. And again, that's a thing that we in Western literature like have decided that is a bad thing for whatever stupid reason, right? Um, except like the thing that you can do with that is like when you accept that it's not a bad thing or a good thing, it's just a neutral thing, it's a tool, you can like mm. use that to pull off some really fucking cool shit. And uh, Shelley Parker Chan does that in this book. Like with the with that those themes of of fate and destiny, um, contrasted with that is is the character agency is uh, Ju Chongba's um, like personal ambition and her personal drive, um, and the part of this which you need some some context about Chinese culture and about Buddhism um, and Taoism because the like the core kind of tenet of Buddhism is desire is the root of all suffering, right? And by desire, we mean wanting things. We mean like attachments to things. Um, and like the the idea is that if you can let go of attachments, then that brings you closer to achieving enlightenment. So wanting your destiny and chasing your destiny is a kind of is a kind of wanting. And and this book um, confronts that. Uh, confronts the desire is the root of all suffering fairly explicitly um, because there's a line in the book about how yes desire does bring suffering but that's better than not suffer that's better than not desiring because it means that you're you're still alive right you're still living and yeah just very very cool uh and it like it ties in a little bit more subtly with a, a lot of themes about hunger and and the ways in which a person can starve for wanting things. Yeah, when I read this, I think the opening chapter, which opens with the famine mm. and, and this family of peasants suffering in a famine was so gripping, mm. even though like not very much, you know, in the technical sense happens in quotation marks, but just the vividness with which you are presented with this absolutely hopeless situation. Yeah. Um, is absolutely incredible. And look, I, again, I'm not going to 
talk too much about on a spoilery level, but you can probably tell from the title and the fact that Shelley has been fairly open in that this is a reimagining of the life and the journey of an actual figure in Chinese history, that this person is destined for greatness. Mm -hmm. And just as with a romance novel, like you know how it's going to end. You know Mm -hmm. where this story is heading in general. You know that this is the story of somebody's ascent. Yeah. You know, there's 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 going to be twists and turns along the way, but you know there's going to be a basically upwards trajectory in terms of power and status for this person. Mm-hmm. And so most of the tension and the joy of the narrative comes from seeing this person is starting in such a low, helpless position. How is the author and the character going to get them upwards? And yes. so that's what the joy of the story was. You're right. It's not about, oh, I want to be surprised. I want there to be, you know, agency that's going to trick me. You know, basically what the first book at least is going to do, but you want to know how. Yeah. And that keeps you yeah. turning pages. The, the weirdest editorial comment I ever got was the comment on a short story that if you write in first person, there's no tension because you know the narrator is going to survive. That is weird. And mm, okay. Okay. But this is like, this is the exact proof of that, right? Because we talk a lot on this episode, on this episode, on this show, we haven't for a while, about how fiction and media is a meal that you consume, Mm -hmm. right? That does different things, different things, different types of story feed you different ways. Yes. Yes. Right. And this is one of those, is the joy of saying this should be impossible but we know it's going to happen so do we trust in the author and let them bring us to that conclusion right right Mm. and like like freya said like it's it's about the it's about the the journey and not the destination because you do know how it ends um but because it is so much about power like you don't know like you don't know how she's getting there and you don't know what the cost of getting there is going to be. You don't know if the person who gets there is really going to be the same Mm -hmm. person who she was when she started out. Like, what is she going to have to sacrifice about herself in order to chase this ambition? Um, And now you're making me think about Baru Cormoran. Yes, actually, yes, quite yes. Um, that's a yep. that's a very very apt comparison. Yeah, I think that when I when I read it a year ago, that's what I tweeted. I said, anyone who likes Baru Cormorant, you will like this, and I stand by it. Yes, yes. <laughs> it also had a lot of like very very cool gender. Back to fuck gender. <laughs> I've I've read several other stories where like someone has to disguise themselves as a different gender, and they never really like dig into that. Um, mm. And she who became the sun absolutely does. Uh, and uh, Shelley Parker Chan does it from two directions actually, because they're uh, the main antagonist, uh, General Uyang, who is my favorite character, and I love him two pieces. Um, so Ju is Ju, the protagonist, is kind of like has all of these non-binary feelings because like she gives up her femininity and like mm. her her attachment to femaleness in order to become a monk and she like lives as a monk for so long that like that's who she is uh Mm -hmm. and like her engagement with herself as a woman or woman adjacent person um is a a significant part of her her plot arc and then on the other side you have general uyang who is a eunuch um and i will tell you a little bit about his backstory because it's not too much of a spoiler um his his father, I believe, committed treason, and so nine that nine generations of his family is cursed, and they killed off 
every male in his family and mm. sold the women into to slavery. And Uyang uh, was the, I forget what his first name is. He's just General Uyang in the text. Um, but uh, Uyang was like nine years old or so at the time and he begged for his life. And so they castrated him uh, in order to keep him alive. And so he is seen by everyone else as being not quite a man and not really anything else. So it's this amazing way of looking at gender in the uh, context of the setting through these two different viewpoints, someone who chose it and someone who absolutely didn't choose mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. and how that colors their their approach to gender and how they see mm -hmm. both their own gender and also how they approach gender of others. Um, so yeah, fascinating, really, really good stuff. Also, fuck tons of fealty. Like, people are, are kneeling right and left, and uh, <laughs> General Uyang absolutely is my favorite again like huge spoilers here which i can't tell you about right now but the like internal conflicts that he has are just like so juicy and good um and i am i am just like deeply deeply into this book it's everything that i love in a book and like shelly's descriptions are so vivid and her grasp of like mm -hmm. setting is so visceral um like i got i was getting chills constantly it's amazing it's great stuff so basically, like, yeah, uh, Freya mentioned uh, The Trader Borrow Cormorant. So if you liked that book, you would like this one. If you are into, like, all of the Chinese dramas that uh, we have been mm. watching these these uh, last year or two, uh, absolutely uh, pick up this book because it's very much in that, like, historical Chinese drama kind of genre. I, 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 it is on my list to read A, I don't have the art, as aforementioned, <laughs> and B, I have been informed it will make me cry a bunch, and I am avoiding books that will make me cry for it, now. It definitely gave me a book hangover. Yeah. I don't, I don't tend to cry in, with books at all, but there are certain books that make me see. just sit in the couch like a stunned mullet for an hour or two, <laughs> and then not be able to pick up another book for a week afterwards. Well, right, well, because they're too powerful. image of Freya, but perhaps we should, sh shall we talk about something that does the opposite for you? Yes. Yes, please, Freya. <laughs> so, as I said at the beginning, and surprising absolutely no one, I am the romance one. I know. And this book that I'm going to attempt to sell to you, I think I have mentioned as a book that I've read mm -hmm. on the podcast, but now I'm going to get a little bit deeper and try and tell you all the reasons why you have to read this. So this is The Duke Who Didn't by Courtney Milan. And Courtney Milan does write quite a few Regency novels. And mm -hmm. this is a male-female Regency romance, which takes the idea of a Regency Duke romance, of which there are many, and says, okay, but what if Chinese, though? Mm. And so the two main characters in this are Jeremy Yu, who is the Duke. And he is a Duke because his father, who was a very minor son of a noble family, went off to China, got married, had Jeremy, and then all the other male people in his family died in various wars or diseases, and someone had to come and be like, okay, but, you know, now you are the duke. But by this stage, then the father dies, so this little boy, who is half Chinese, gets taken back to England by his aunt, so his um, father's sister, who is very invested in making him into a proper duke. Mm -hmm. Oh, the poor kid. <laughs> and... And the other protagonist of this book is Chloe Fong, who is also Chinese. And her backstory is that her she came to England with her father, who 
was almost poached by a pe- group of people who wanted him to make sauce for them. So he is an amazing <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and a pair, a I, pair I of poached. That, like, he got poached. Dot points. Dear list- oh, God. Dear <laughs> listeners, the, the dot points um, include a note, the idea of Englishness brackets in the form of sauce. I'm getting to that. I have been eyeballing, Freya. You can't just do this to us. Okay. Sauce. So backstory, re-sauce. Um, <laughs> Chloe's father, so her, her mother is dead. Her father is essentially conned by a couple of white men <laughs> who say, we want you to make this, we've tasted this amazing sauce you've made. Why don't you go into business with us and we will sell this sauce and you will be a partner in the profits. Except then, of course, they screw him out of everything and take the formula for the sauce and leave him penniless and alone in England with this with his young daughter. Fuck the English. Fuck the English. And this is, well, the idea behind this book is that of who is actually English and who gets to be English and what is Englishness. And it's set in a village called Wedgford. It's it's going to be the first in a a series called the, The Wedgford Trials, which is very deliberately racially diverse and it became mm-hmm. a it became a village because a couple of chinese men settled there and decided okay look there's almost nobody here but we are this is where we are going to set up and it became known as a place where people who had you know come from overseas didn't mm-hmm. speak the language had not had good luck in their employment or whatever could come and it's a place where nobody asks questions about where you are from or what your backstory mm-hmm. is but everyone is accepted and so it is a very, very racially diverse, small English village in the Re- Regency era. Hmm. And why I wrote down the idea of Englishness in the form of source <laughs> is that Chloe's one driving ambition in life is to get revenge for her father against these people mm-hmm. who screwed him over. And so he has developed this new and even better source using like fermentation and lots of techniques that he knew from from his work in China, but using only ingredients that he can find in England. Mm. And so there's this long on-running thread about like she can't decide what to call the source that they're going to sell at this festival and make a lot of money and you know pr- prove that he's a genius. And Chloe cannot decide what to call the source. And you know she doesn't want to call it a foreign source because it's actually an English source and she is right. English and she sees herself as English because she grew up in England. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of really interesting, uh, you know, discussions and things happening in the background of what is a relatively lighthearted romance um, <laughs> around the ideas of identity and racial identity uh, in this historical context. And it is a really lovely romance. So it's a one that I usually don't find as interesting, which is, childhood friends to lovers where they are basically already in love at the start of the story. Mm-hmm. So Jeremy is the Duke who owns the village of Wedgford <laughs> and has not told any of his friends in the village <laughs> that he is the Duke who owns it. Amazing. And everybody there is really relieved because the Duke doesn't seem to care, like never collects rent. Like the only reason they've managed to thrive <laughs> is because they're not having to pay rent. Yeah. And even though they don't own the land and the houses that they live in, they can basically act as though they do. So everybody goes around and be like, ha ha, fuck the Duke, the Duke who didn't do anything. And Jeremy, who goes there every year to take part in this festival called the Wedgford Trials, um, thinks of it as basically his home. Like he has all his friends there. He loves everyone there. He really loves Chloe. But he hasn't told anybody that he is the Duke. And he knows <laughs> how terrible... Uh, you know, a life his mother um, 
would have had being forced to be a duchess um, mm-hmm. and like how terribly she was treated by society and how, and he's very aware of all the microaggressions against him, despite the fact that he is technically, you know, a duke and well-born and how his very well-meaning aunt is trying to erase everything that is not mm. properly English about himself and mm. trying to convince him to marry um, a white English woman so that eventually the mistake oh, that is his ethnicity will be erased from the family line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he turns up a few days before this festival where Chloe and her dad are going to sell this sauce and make their fortune and he's got it in his head that like he's realized he doesn't want to marry anybody except chloe there is a cat on the screen there Hello, is a very cat. important cat we're just going to have a brief pause brief uh, pause for, for cat. cat pause for the cat the cat is very the cat is being exceedingly agreeable and gentle which is how you can tell there are no women nearby yeah hmm. <laughs> that's true she's a violent misogynist <laughs> oh she's the worst Respectful of gender identity, though, so at least she's got that going for her. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Freya. Freya, um, please resume. Yes, for anyway, this is the romance between Chloe, who is a very serious list maker, who cannot delegate and is extremely <laughs> into everything being perfect, uh, oh, and gosh. Jeremy, who as a self-defense mechanism has learned to turn everything into a joke. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the people are laughing at him, they might be slightly more likely to accept him into places and take him uh. a bit seriously. And he is dead serious about Chloe, but cannot persuade her of this fact because everything just comes out wrong. I and love that character. character it's it's a wonderful like, that the, archetype? The journey yeah. that they go on. And as I said, it's a romance. You know where it's going. But, but Courtney Milan also manages to subvert some of the beats like you, mm-hmm. you think, oh, there'll be a dark moment coming up at around seventy-five percent mark, and you know it's to do with this secret that Jeremy is keeping that he think he is convinced is going to ruin everything, mm-hmm. and the way Courtney Milan handles that is, in a way, a kind of w- way of taking a step back and looking at the accepted beats and structure of romance and saying, but mm. it doesn't have to be like that, and you can yeah. still tell a satisfying romance in a different way, and like any good romance, it has really good tropes. It has seduction via lists. It has Chloe's father putting huge amounts of chili powder into Jeremy's noodles and then staring at him dead-eyed while he eats it in pain. I love a dad. And of course it is a revenge story and I love revenge stories. It also contains probably my favourite ever use of the only one bed trope. uh, Tell me everything. Again, this is a book which has a lot to do with fate. And Chloe is convinced... When she's working through things and she's trying to consider, like, does she want to have a fling with Jeremy? Does she, you know, will, does she want to sleep with him? She's like, okay, we are going to London to do this errand and we have to stay at an inn. And if fate wants us to sleep together, there will only be, be one room left. And so, and she has like made this bargain <laughs> with herself because she's all into like lists and bargains. Uh, and yes. And so she's told herself, and she has this discussion with Jeremy. She said, okay, this is how it works. If there is only one bed, we will share the bed. And then they get to the inn. Uh-huh. And first of all, they are told that there are no beds because they are two Chinese people. Uh, okay, and then right. Jeremy dukes at them for a while. Sure. <laughs> love, and then love the use goes, of the oh, verb to oh, duke. <laughs> I was mistaken. We actually have four rooms available. And Chloe goes, actually, you know what? Sometimes you have to make your own fate. And ah! steps up to the counter and says, sir, I believe you are mistaken. I think you'll find you only have one bed. And the poor innkeeper is like, um, um, 
yes it is I, the, the, the one we have left is the best of the four that we have but we only have one and so she basically says fuck fate i am going to make it that there is only one bed and jeremy's like oh my god oh my god oh my god <laughs> that's incredible it's a, it's a perfect her. scene i feel like i can spoil it for you because like knowing it's coming does not diminish the joy of it no, right. at yeah, all yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so oh, yes gosh, this was amazing this is a, a flawless romance novel Courtney Milan's writing is very easy to read it's clever it's bubbly and mm-hmm. it digs into these deep themes and it makes you care so hard about these mm-hmm. characters and before I finish I just wanted to as Macy did make a bit of a nod to some of the other great writers of color who are working in this particular genre at the moment um, I know I've mentioned books by all of them in our years of podcasting <laughs> but in particular Alyssa Cole Alyssa Cole writes both Civil War era spy romances uh, with African-American protagonists and also a series about modern African royals, which I absolutely love. I love her uh, Reluctant Royals and Runaway Royals series. Alicia Rye uh, writes a lot of interracial romances where neither person is white, which Mm -hmm. is actually quite Mm -hmm. uncommon in the romance space. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she writes books that are very clever about the use of social media and the impact that social media has in today's society. Mm -hmm. And she also writes incredible, like complex family dynamics. So if you want really good family feelings, Alicia Rye. I think I'll, I'll leave it there for those two. There are other two favorites. Well, uh, dear listeners, uh, there are some books. There are some books. There yeah, are some there very are many good books. books. Too powerful. I think with all three of these, we can like TLDR. Too powerful. Too, too, too powerful. powerful. Too powerful. Uh, too talented. Amazing. <laughs> uh, so thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will leave it at that because this episode is running a little bit long. We love you. Goodbye. Bye. everybody thanks for joining us on this episode of be the serpent a podcast of extremely extremely deep literary merit now i know what you may be wondering wait a second alex didn't you do the outro for the last episode and now you're doing it for this episode and presumably for the next episode yes but then we'll be back on track after that uh you know the old adage it never rains but it pours that but for all three of your slurpents all at once like for like the last two months solid uh there have been just way way too many things uh but your american slurpent has had the fewest things going on and so your american slurpent is nobly honorably martyring themselves by graciously doing three outros in a row uh i know you must miss freya and macy's dulcet tones Well, probably not that much, actually, since you literally just heard them on the actual episode, but never mind. Uh, Anyway, we'll be back on track soon. Uh, Anyway, we have some exciting topics to talk about in upcoming episodes. On the next episode, two weeks hence on March 24th, which is a fake date made up by the government to trick us and lie to us, uh, we'll be discussing girl gangs. Gangs of girls. If you want to prepare in advance, one of the tentpoles for that episode is the novella Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark. So if you know anyone who loves that trope, give them a heads up. Word of mouth is the only way that people find out about us. If you enjoy the podcast, uh, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com serpentcast or leaving a review on iTunes. Questions, comments, breathless adulations? Contact us at serpentcast at gmail.com or at serpentcast on Twitter and Tumblr. And by the way, 
your eyebrows are looking especially cute today. I just thought I'd let you know. 